penetrating music you just heard was from the scherzo, the second movement of the Violin Concerto No. 1 in A minor, Opus 77 of Russian composer Dmitry Shostakovich, a concerto written in 1948 but not premiered until 1955, and we'll talk about why later. The performance you just heard was by violinist Rachel Barden-Pine with the Royal Scottish National Orchestra, conducted by Tito Munoz, and it's one of two works on a new album on Sadie Records titled Dependent Arising. And uh, those of you who have listened before know that every time we have a new release on Sadie, and this is our new release for August 2023, we have a new classical Chicago podcast. I'm Jim Ginsberg, founder and president of Sadie Records, and this podcast features Rachel Barden-Pine, the violin soloist on this album, Composer Earl Manian, who is the composer of the other concerto on this album, which gives the album its title of Dependent Arising, and we'll talk about that later, too. I should note that this album is generously funded in part by the Sage Foundation, which has been a huge supporter of Rachel's work over many, many years. So violinist Rachel Barden-Pine and composer Earl Manian, welcome to you both. Hi. Great to be here. Great to be here. Well, before we get started, uh, let me give a quick introduction. So Rachel Barden-Pine is quite simply one of the most fascinating violinists performing today. A concert violinist of the highest rank, she performs recitals and concertos throughout the world, working with top orchestras and conductors in the U.S. and around the globe. Unique among today's performers, she's also a leading period instrument specialist, one of the world's authorities on the music of black composers past and present, and a successful performer in multiple genres, including heavy metal, which we'll talk about more in a moment. Rachel has made well over 40 recordings for CD, AV, and other labels. Dependent Arising is Rachel's 24th recording for CD, and the majority of those CD Records recordings I've had the honor and pleasure of producing, including this one. Most recently, she's released her performance of a violin concerto by the Syrian-American composer Malik Jandali, and that was released just a couple months ago, in fact, on CD Records in, in May of 2023. Rachel's pioneering album of concertos by black composers of the 18th and 19th centuries, originally released in 1997, was updated and reissued with the recently discovered Florence Price second violin concerto just last fall. Some of her other best-selling albums include a recording of the Brahms violin concerto coupled with a concerto written by Brahms dedicatee Josef Joachim, performed with the Chicago Symphony Orchestra, conducted by Carlos Kalmar. She's also recorded Mozart's complete violin concertos with the Academy of St. Martin in the Fields and Sir Neville Mariner. Other best-selling albums include Testament, the complete sonatas and partitas for solo violin of Johann Sebastian Bach, the Paganini 24 Caprices and other solo works for violin, and Sadie Records' best-selling album of all time, Violin Lullabies, released in 2013. So that's just the tip of the iceberg, frankly, for Rachel. Also should mention that she runs her own foundation. The RBP Foundation assists young artists through an instrument loan program and grants for education and career and since 2001 has run the groundbreaking Music by Black Composers project. Rachel performs on the ex-Bazzini, ex-Soldat, Joseph Guarnierius del Jesu violin created in Cremona in 1742, which is on lifetime loan from her anonymous patron, and I think it's fair to say is one of the things that gives Rachel her very distinctive sound. I can tell you when one of her albums appears on the radio, I can immediately identify that sound, and I know 
Of course, most of it's Rachel, but part of it is that wonderful violin as well. And uh, her website is rachelbardenpine.com. As for Earl, Earl is a violinist and composer who stands at the somewhat unlikely crossroads of Western classical music, heavy metal, and hardcore punk. Robert Trujillo, the bassist for Metallica, has called Earl, quote, a kick-ass artist who pushes the creative boundaries. Earl is the founder of and main composer for a string quartet called Seven Sons, and that's seven spelled out with an N paren and then sons. And that group plays both extant classical as well as new metal and hardcore work. He's also a member of the Vitamin String Quartet, whose music was recently featured on the Netflix show Bridgerton. As a composer, Earl has received commissions from a broad array of individuals and institutions, including, of course, violinist Rachel Barden-Pine and the pioneering hardcore band The Dillinger Escape Plan to Dance Theater of Harlem and the Phoenix Symphony, led by Tito Munoz, and we'll talk about them a little later in this podcast. And Earl's website is earlmaneanmusic.com, and that's spelled E-A-R-L-M-A-N-E-E-I-N music.com. So with those introductions, I think you can already hear that this album has a classical meets heavy metal theme, as both Rachel and Earl perform in the two different genres. And we'll have a more in-depth discussion of that when we get to Earl's piece. In fact, Rachel has a comment in her personal note to the album about Shostakovich being the most beloved classical composer among metalheads. Rachel, can you expound on that a little bit and talk about how you discovered both the metal genre and Shostakovich and when you started connecting the two? Okay. Well, I think that's three questions in one. (laughs) (laughs) Sometimes you'll get these playlists. It used to be CD collections of most headbanging classical music or something. And and they always get it wrong. They'll have things like this Johann Strauss Thunder and Lightning Polka. And that's not it at all. Just because something is fast and loud and crashy doesn't make it metal. It has to have a certain meaning to it. And if something is happy, 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 that just doesn't cut it. It's interesting. A lot of Bartok's pieces will have these amazing headbanging moments, but there's something about Shostakovich just all the way through, whether he's slower, faster, anything. There's an underlying darkness that I think particularly appeals to people who particularly love metal. And actually on Facebook for many, many years, there was a Facebook group called I Headbang to Shostakovich and everybody would post their favorite movements or their favorite pieces or different arrangements. There are actually a shockingly large number of electric guitar covers of Shostakovich that you can find on YouTube, including the last movement of this concerto played by a guitar guy that plays all the parts layered together. There's also a really good one of, actually, there's more than one of the scherzo of the 10th symphony, which was written in the yeah, same period. Yeah, exactly. Shostakovich. Yeah, once you hear the music, it just makes sense. Grew up listening to nothing but classical with the occasional Chicago blues thrown in. Um, my parents had WFMT on in the car radio, the home radio. And that was what I heard all day. But then when I was 10, Santa Claus brought me my first transistor radio under the Christmas tree. And so I was very excited to scroll up and down the dial and hear all kinds of sounds I had never encountered before. I mean, I'd come across a little bit of pop music, maybe like when carpooling to youth group with one of the other girls, not just top 40, but like the classic rock stations and the the weird college stations at the bottom end of the dial. And then at the top end of the dial, I discovered a 
station that didn't come on till 10 p.m. that played actual metal, not just the hard rock stuff on Top 40, but things like Megadeth and Anthrax and Slayer and Pantera. And somehow this music just grabbed me. And at the time, I thought it was because I was listening to classical so much and studying it so much. You know, by the time I was 11, I was practicing eight hours a day, not including rehearsals and coachings and performances. And I was homeschooled to accommodate that. That so was just a total immersion. Of course, classical is my first love. But when I would listen to something classical, if it was a piece I already knew, I couldn't help but analyze the interpretation. And if it was a piece I didn't yet know, I couldn't help but analyze the composition. So I was always using my thinking brain when listening to classical. And if I wanted to just chill out, classical wasn't going to do it. So for some reason, heavy metal was mm. the music I could literally relax to, which sounds paradoxical. But I, at the time, really thought it was because it was so far away from classical. And that's why it really worked. And it wasn't till many years later that I discovered the reason I loved it was because it's one of the closest of the rock subgenres, or at least some of the subgenres of metal are very, very close to classical, especially, you know, my particular favorite thrash. And the reason I discovered this is kind of a funny story. When I was 20 years old in 95, I was invited to play the national anthem for a Chicago Bulls playoff game. And I thought, well, cool, you know, I get to play in front of 20,000 people live, which normally acoustic violinist doesn't ever get to do, no matter how popular they might be. Best thing of all, I get good seats to the game. I actually got to meet Michael and Scotty and the whole team. So it was just a super fun event. But what I didn't think about is not just those 20,000 people in the stadium, but millions of people on TV saw my performance. And I started getting random strangers coming up to me in the street saying, hey, I saw you on the Bulls. And I thought it was really cool. The national anthem, the Star Spangled Banner, if played as written, sounds like a Suzuki book one violin piece. There's not much to it. So I made a Paganini-ish arrangement where the violin got to do double stops and pizzicato and harmonics. So 120 seconds of showing the violin shred over the Star Spangled Banner. And all these people and their enthusiasm really made me realize, hey, wait a sec. It's not that people don't like classical. It's that they haven't been exposed to it and heard the violin go for it. So I thought, okay, how can I bring the violin to people, you know, in other ways, not just Bulls playoff games. So that's when I started going on rock radio stations. That was the first time I'd ever tried to play this music that I'd been listening to on my instrument. What I would do is I would, depending on the format of the station, I'd play a little Metallica or I might play a little Led Zeppelin. And then I would follow that up with some Isai or a Paganini Caprice and talk about how exciting classical music is. And, you know, and then of course, hey, come check out the symphony show tomorrow and it was so rewarding and still is to get people who come up to the autograph table and they're like this was my first ever orchestra concert and I loved it yeah so that was kind of the mission I was on but consequently I started playing metal on the violin for the first time just these covers my acoustic but that meant that I actually had to pay attention to the structure of the metal songs and I was like wait a sec these seem quite familiar to my classical brain and ear and of of course, it turns out that that was absolutely correct. A lot of these bands, once I started meeting, hanging out with my favorite bands, they were talking about how their music was classically inspired and influenced. And, and in fact, there are a lot of people out there, you'd be really surprised, a lot of people who listen to classical and metal 
And my goal is to get them to the classical concerts because they're a little bit shy sometimes, just like people might think, oh, if you go to a metal show, it's going to be these scary tattooed people who are crashing into each other. Uh, metal people might be like, oh, it's scary to go to a classical concert. Everybody's wearing a tuxedo and acting hoity-toity. And it's like, no, no, neither is true. Just, you know, maybe put on your good jeans and check it out and clap when you feel like it. It's all fine. So that's the message that I try to spread. And it's been super rewarding. And as for Shostakovich, when did you first discover his music uh, before you started actually playing the concerto? Yeah, so actually by sheer coincidence, it was the same year that I discovered metal, age 10. I was going to my first hardcore classical camp, Meadow Mount School of Music in upstate New York. And on the student concerts, there was a college kid who was playing some Shostakovich that summer. I heard both the sonata and the concerto for cello. And gosh, I mean, I can only describe each of those experiences as shock and awe. Of course, I was excited to hear so many different string concertos and sonatas and virtuoso pieces that I'd never yet heard. But somehow this Shostakovich cello stuff was just like, whoa, it just blew me away emotionally. It just hit me in the gut. And then the next year, age 11, I joined the Civic Orchestra of Chicago. And I was 12 when we performed Symphony Number no. 5, which was my first exposure to a Shostakovich symphony. And the next year, I heard Spring Quartet number eight. And just each time, it was just another just overwhelming experience. And every time I encountered Chostakovich again, it was just like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, what is this music? And so actually, I wanted to ask you, because as long as I've known you all the way since 96, since we've started working together, I've been aware that Shostakovich is actually your very favorite composer. And I wanted to ask um, why of all the composers in existence, is he your very favorite? Oh, well, appreciate you asking that, Rachel. And Earl, you're, you're up next, but I guess I'll go first or I'll go in between you two. The short answer is his music hits me on an emotional level more powerfully, really, than any other composers. And actually, my first discovery was also that cello concerto. In 1981, on what would have been his 75th birthday, uh, September 25th, I was living in Washington because, as my father used to say, uh, we moved there because my mother got a good job. I saw a notice in the paper that the National Symphony was giving an all-Shostakovich concert in celebration of this birthday, and his son, Maxim Shostakovich, was conducting, and the legendary cellist and music director of the orchestra, Mislav Rostropovich, was going to play the first cello concerto. I knew absolutely nothing about Shostakovich. I knew nothing about the history of, of his music and what he went through. But I thought, oh, well, this looks interesting. So I got my father to take me, and like a shock and awe is about right. I was just absolutely floored. It was a little unusual because the concert actually included one of his very few purely happy works, his second piano concerto that he had written for his son, now who was now there conducting, and actually showed that when he wanted to, he could write music with as much infectious joy as Haydn or Mendelssohn. Unfortunately, those were very few and far between in his case. But the work that absolutely floored me was that first cello concerto and with Rostropovich absolutely playing his heart out and also concluded with a very powerful sixth symphony. I literally never heard music like this before and I've been listening to classical music since I was very, very small. <laughs> so I immediately went to the Martin Luther King Library in Washington and basically pulled every Shostakovich recording I could find back then and just one after another whether it was the Seventh Symphony or the Violin Concerto or the String Quartets, which I really got into, and I'm very 
proud, by the way, that Sadie has recorded all of those incredible quartets with the Pacifica Quartet. One after another just hit me in the gut like no other composer. So the quartets are very personal, but to hear one of his big works like the 8th or 10th Symphony in a concert is just an overwhelming experience. And then this violin concerto, the combination, really the two, there's the extremely personal moments, but they're also overwhelmingly powerful moments. This is actually one of my absolute favorite works of his, and we'll get to talk about that uh, later. Uh, but Earl, I know you have your own discovering Shostakovich story. Could you tell about that? It mirrors yours, Jim, in some ways. I started taking violin lessons when I was five. My parents signed me up for these lessons, and I went along the same path that many violinists do in America. Henry Ford, Lee Suzuki line of hmm. book one, book two, you know, through the Suzuki books. And all of these pieces are all pleasant. In high school, I went to high school in, in the Bronx, in Bronx High School of Science, and it's not really a primarily music-oriented high school, but because of it being a specialized high school in New York City, there were definitely musically inclined students in the school, and what our music teacher did was he put us in small ensembles, and then the best of the small ensembles would have the opportunity to be coached by a Chamber Music Society of Lincoln Center. And so I was in a group with, and I'll mention this because you mentioned Pacifica, I was actually in a group with Masumi Rostad of Pacifica. I think he's ex-Pacifica now. Form, former Pacifica now, yeah, but he's on those uh, Shostakovich quartet recordings. Yes, so it was me and Masumi and two other friends that were being coached by Ani Kafafian, and we were reading through the eighth quartet, and this just blew me away the emotional, the deeply profound and super painful, it just hit me. I couldn't even make words of it when we were reading through it. And Ms. Kafafian said that it was dedicated to the victims of fascism and terror. And, and never before in my life had I heard classical music that spoke to those psychological states with complete truth. I think I was like 15, 15 or 16 at the time and in this chamber group. I'd never played anything like Shostakovich before then. And that addressing of pain and suffering links to that to the metal music that you also love, right? Absolutely. That's actually painted with a giant oversimplistic brush. That's the nub. That's the actual point of the connection between the two, that both musics, you'll have different languages, different ways of communicating it, but it's the expression of mm -hmm. pain and suffering. I should mention, by the way, although the official dedication was to about fascism, it's generally believed that that quartet and other works of his are thinking more about the Stalinist terror that he actually lived through. And in fact, in your notes for the recording, you reference the dissonant uh, chords in the fourth movement, which are widely considered to be the NKVD, the precursor to the KGB, uh, knocking on the door to take you away. Yes. Yeah, well, I remember hearing that quartet performed and, you know, they have that long, soft note and then it goes, dun, 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 and I remember just jumping out of my seat mm -hmm. like it was terrifying. Like, you don't have to know what he meant to know that it's terrifying. Exactly. Well, in fact, uh, when I went to that concert, as I mentioned, I didn't know the history. I later learned all about it. But the thing is, you feel it in the music. You don't actually have to know. The music tells you what was going on at the time and what people were suffering through. It's really remarkable. 
I just remember going home on the train and that just completely taking over my mind, going home from the coaching and just thinking about it didn't leave me for a very long time. Well, this is actually a good segue into talking about the history. And Earl, I mentioned earlier that this violin concerto was written in 1948, but not premiered until 1955. Can you explain the conditions under which Shostakovich wrote this concerto and why he had to withhold it for performance for seven years? Sure. Living under Stalin, he had undergone already previous denunciations in 1936. And now in 1948, Zhdanov got in front of the Central Committee and denounced not only Shostakovich, but also Prokofiev, Aram Khachaturian, among others, and accusing these composers, these leading Soviet composers, of something called formalism, which is a very bland sort of word. They basically having bourgeois tendencies that were not sufficiently showing communist we're all one and too much individualism. And so it was all sort of blanketed as formalism. Anyway, all these guys were on the hook. In Stalinist Russia, if you're denounced, this is no small thing. This is not like you could lose your job. You could, well, you could, you would absolutely lose your job, but you could also lose your life or at the very least get arrested and sent to the gulag. So Shostakovich could absolutely not publish this piece, which has in hindsight, many, many, many things that would get him arrested for sure. A lot of references to basically protest what, Stalin's policies and living under this totalitarian regime. Before we get into the individual movements, what is your overall impression of the feelings the concerto conveys emotionally and the techniques uh, Shostakovich uh, uses to produce these effects? There's so many. I think the overall feeling is, in my subjective opinion, is one of a protagonist. I tend to look at concertos as the voice of as unnamed protagonist, but I see this concerto as a protagonist struggling against forces that might crush them. And ultimately, the ending is ambiguous, but that's generally the broad brushstrokes of how I feel what, what this concerto is portraying, a protagonist struggling against forces that they possibly cannot fight. I think I felt that same way without understanding, again, the history, but I think I had that same feeling when I first heard the first cello concerto uh, at that uh, concert that I mentioned. Rachel, any thoughts? Yeah, well, yeah. I don't want to, you know, fall into the simplistic description of soloist versus orchestra, because I think sometimes the orchestra is absolutely on the same side as the soloist protagonist, as Earl said. But yeah, it's absolutely exploring emotions that a lot of concertos simply don't. I mean, they're plenty of concertos that have moments of angst, but it seems to maybe be more personal angst about heartbreak or, you know, trying to figure out your life, that sort of thing. And of course, then there are plenty of concertos that have positive emotions, the whole spectrum of those or elevated emotions like Brahms. I always think they're describing the majesty of creation or something, but yeah, here with the Shostakovich, it's there's fear and there's despair and there's anger and reactionist sarcasm and and protest and it's very very dark. It's sad to say, there's never yet been a time since its composition when it wasn't appropriate to things still going on in the world. Yeah. To piggyback on what Rachel just said, 
Shostakovich was one of the few composers that used that darkness and bleakness and pain and suffering as almost the worldview. It's the overarching the structure of it. Like for Beethoven or Mendelssohn, you do have moments of individual angst where the protagonist is perhaps feeling this angst, but it's never on a global sense. And I think with the Shostakovich and many of Shostakovich's works, there is this, this is the worldview. In testimony, Volkov quotes him as referring to his uh, symphonies as, quote, tombstones. Mm. Wow. <laughs> now, Rachel, what is your history with the Shostakovich concerto as a performer before we got to recording it? I actually did not learn it as a student. I got to a certain point when I was finishing my formal training. I had worked on, for example, the Berg, of course, the Prokofiev's. But my experience with the Berg, and I was lucky enough to actually, I've played it with many, many orchestras, but it took a number of years until that first bite. I would play with an orchestra once, and then they would invite me for a return engagement, and I'd say, what about the Berg? And it was just so hard to get anybody to finally say yes. And I was like, ugh, 20th century concertos are so hard to get programmed. I'm not going to break my heart by learning one and being dying to perform it and then having to wait all these years. I'll wait till I'm booked to play it, and then I'll learn it. And that's what I ended up doing for Bartok in Britain and a number of other great 20th century concertos. So same thing with Shostakovich. I really wanted to learn it. Of course, I'd heard recordings, but I didn't practice it until I got booked to play it. But it turned out that I got booked to play it in the late 90s when I was in my early 20s as a last minute sub job, not as last minute as some of my recent dramas mm -hmm. like the performing at Ravinia on three and a half hours notice. This was about a week's notice or maybe four days. Sadly, a young soloist who had been booked to play with this orchestra in Massachusetts had been mugged in New York and her hand was bruised. So she knew that she wouldn't be able to do the concert the next weekend. So they invited me to do it. And I totally freaked my husband. Well, he wasn't my husband yet. He was just my boyfriend. But I totally freaked him out because... I spent the entire first day of prep with my violin completely in the case. And he's like, aren't you going to practice? Aren't you going to practice? But I knew that I needed to analyze the score first because putting in fingerings isn't just utilitarian. It's also, you need to know what color you want for this spot to know if you're going to put it on the A string versus the D string. I wanted to actually have an interpretation in my mind based on analyzing the music before I started playing it on my instrument. I spent that whole first day just figuring things out. And then, of course, started woodshedding pretty intensely. And it was a crazy concert because the conductor had what I would think would not be a very ticket-selling theme for the concert, but you had your season ticket subscribers that came regardless. His theme for the concert was Pasacalia because of the third movement of the concerto. So he had some Haydn symphony that also contained a Pasacalia. Shostakovich was on the second half. I think it was the second half. But in the middle of the first half of the concert, the violin soloist came out on stage and played the Bach Chacon, which of course is a, a Chacon is the close cousin of a Pasacalia. So not only did I have to learn the Shostakovich concerto on four days notice, I also had to get the Bach Chacon performance ready at the same time. So never a dull moment. Having studied the score, having listened to recordings, 
it was a whole different experience to hear the orchestra behind me, surrounding me, playing this music with me and just overwhelming. And I completely fell in love with the concerto and so eager to play it again as many times as I could. A couple of other memorable ones along the way. There was a fun concert at Ravinia one time with Chicago Symphony where they actually did a concerto sandwich. It reminds me of those children's books where you flip the pages and you have the head of a giraffe in the midsection of a lion and the feet of an elephant or uh, so they did a three movement concerto made up of other concertos so it's actually last movement of Glazunov, second movement of Prokofiev II, last movement of Shostakovich one and um, actually worked very well and I kind of loved it I mean of course it's you know totally satisfying to play a concerto in its entirety but the kind of sampler plate was really a neat way to introduce all three of these concertos to audiences and hopefully make them curious to hear the rest in 2016 the night of the presidential election like many people i was staying up all night watching the results roll in or surprised by what was happening and rather dismayed well that's too mild of a word but seeing my facebook feed filling up with friend after friend, especially African-American friends, LGBTQ friends, who were fearful for their personal safety. I'm not getting into politics here, but it was more about results of that election empowering certain citizens to behave in ways that they might otherwise have restrained themselves from acting. And and so just seeing friends say, oh, maybe I don't dare take an Uber for a while because it might not be safe. You know, maybe that was an overreaction on their part, but it was also, there was a legitimacy there. I know that it was the first time that I, as a disabled person, really felt this visceral feeling like, oh my God, I'm part of a minority group. And that was the result of the direction that things were going. So I had to fly out to this gig the next morning and I had hardly slept the night before. And I arrived at the orchestra and apologized to the conductor. I said, you know, I'm just a little strung out here. And she was like, well, yeah, so am I. And I was just so glad that it was Shostakovich because I felt like there's no way I could have effectively played something happy and cheerful like the Mendelssohn Concerto under these circumstances. Ironically, this performance was in a red area of a red state and probably a, a lot of the audience hearing the performance were happy about the result of the election. But just this concerto and thinking about what had happened in that part of the world and what could happen in other parts of the world, including our own. And you tend to think historically, you're playing some music of the past and you're putting yourself in the shoes of someone from another time and place, almost like an actor, imagining what it might be like back then going through whatever they went through. I'm happily married, but occasionally I play pieces that are about heartbreak and I just have to imagine what heartbreak would feel like, right? That's sort of thing. But in this case, it, it just felt so real that weekend playing the Shostakovich. And I think it was probably the most painful and fearful performance that hopefully I'll ever give of it, depending on how the world goes. Well, I actually wanted to follow up on that because, you know, the Shostakovich, well, I think it's fair to say in the later part of the 20th century, there were a lot of critics and ivory tower types who turned their noses up at Shostakovich as not being modern enough or something, but he's definitely had the last laugh if you look at what orchestras are playing today. And this violin concerto is certainly a repertory work today. So how do you make your mark on a piece like this that all your colleagues play? And uh, does your background in heavy metal maybe give you a little bit of a different perspective? You know, first to answer just globally, any 
of the standard violin concertos. I got to get out there and not be a replica of Oistrecker, Meilstein, but also not fall into the trap of trying to be different just to be different and somehow being inauthentic by doing so. We've seen plenty of eccentric violinists who don't really seem to mean it, but they're just trying to stand out in an artificial way. Or people who are caught up in being somehow mm -hmm. so perfect that they end up being boring. But <laughs> there are some concertos that I feel that I, I play well and I stand behind, but I don't feel that my interpretation is necessarily so special that I'm passionate about committing it to album for posterity. And then, of course, there are others that I do feel that I perhaps bring my own unique thoughts to. And many of those I've already recorded. In the case of the Shostakovich, it's interesting because, you know, you always think of the interpretation of the dedicatee as being definitive. And of course, you know, Oistrakh's um, performance is absolutely spectacular. But that's the thing about great compositions. There are always more thoughts to be thunk, right? It's, of course, wonderful with the 20th century concerto that we have a record of how the dedicatee played it, which we don't have on album for previous centuries. But one can't be too bound by that. You have to still approach the music in a way as you would 18th or 19th century piece and say, okay, just based on the music, what do I want to do? And one of the reasons I love metal, I think I'm an adrenaline junkie. I'm I'm also a safe person. Like I would never go skydiving. I stopped riding motorcycles when I was 16, when I realized that a helmet didn't protect your arms and hands. Do try to be safe, but like roller coasters, like I'll go to an amusement park and just go over and over and over again on a roller coaster and do nothing else. Like I definitely am an adrenaline junkie. I think that's why I love the larger the concert hall, the better that kind of thing. <laughs> This intensity that exists at metal concerts that is beyond most other genres that you would ever go to a concert of, even when the crowd is going crazy for Taylor Swift or whatever it is, there's not that same intensity. And if you experienced it in person, you would absolutely know what I mean. And that going past the edge is the feeling that I want to bring to certain moments of the Shostakovich mm -hmm. concerto, particularly at the end of the cadenza, for example. And definitely having those experiences of angst in my life, just that intensity of having played metal, watched metal, listened to metal all these years, you just want to go for as much intensity as is possible, push yourself past the edge. And I think it really works. And, you know, I would never rock and roll it up in other concertos. You've got to keep keep it classy and play it the way the music should be played. But I think this music should actually do that. And that it, to me, it's more effective that way. Maybe not by another violinist, but to me, with my interpretation, doing that feels that way. And of course, like probably every human, you know, I can bring some personal experience and some personal feelings to some of the dark emotions throughout the concerto, whether it's just feelings about my country and the world, or maybe negative things that I've personally gone through over the years. Happy times in life are just as important to one's personality as a performer, but piece like this, then you try to remember sad things as well. So let's focus on this amazing concerto one movement at a time now. The first movement is titled Nocturne. Uh, how does Shostakovich give it such a dark feeling? One of the things that I've observed having taught hundreds of master classes over the decades is that when people interpret music, 
and it says forte and it says forte for measure after measure, section after section, even page after page in certain compositions. Nobody has a problem with that. They can be loud and stay loud and don't feel any need to deviate from that. But when the music, and this happens like, for example, in Beethoven first piano trio, right? When it says soft and it says to stay soft, people somehow can't deal. And they always want to add interpretation and get a little louder and then go back to being soft and then have dynamics. And it's like, wait a sec, maybe there's a power in looking at the macro of the journey and actually staying soft for a while so that then when you do get louder, it has more impact. And in this particular first movement, Shostakovich has you stay soft for a really, really, really long time. And it almost seems like, can he really mean it? Was he just being a minimalist with his dynamics and just giving you a general idea and he meant for you to add more details? No, he wants you to just stay soft. And there's something incredibly powerful. It sounds oppressed. It feels oppressed. You don't want to stay soft, but it's like you have to stay soft. All those um, huge emotions are there, but you're keeping them inside. You're keeping them hidden like people had to do where they were afraid that the secret police might be listening in, even if they were talking to their own spouse, oh, because you just never knew who was going to spy on you and rat you out. And it's just this fear and anguish and having to keep it inside. And so there's a feeling of desperation that starts to come out of this holding back that is so much a part of that movement. Earl, you actually write about the prevailing pianissimo dynamic in this movement. Is there anything you want to add to what Rachel just said? She actually said it beautifully. I want to lightheartedly say I was one of those, Rachel, who failed to do that when I first studied the piece as a freshman in college. And my teacher, Danny Phillips of uh, Orion String Quartet, had said something very similar to what you were saying Rachel, you're supposed to be repressed. The pianissimo is a repression, and you're playing it as if it was like this Puccini aria. You're so sad, and everybody knows how sad you are, and you're not supposed to be so bald-faced about your, <laughs> your sadness. <laughs> you know, this is too much. Well, I have yet to give a masterclass where the young person didn't play expressively because that's how we're taught to play. And this is something so different. We don't have much other rep like this, so we don't know to do that. It's like the opening of Prokofiev F minor sonata, which is a very anti-war piece with the wind in the graveyard and the sarcastic triumphant march that's actually saying, you know, aren't these soldiers ridiculous celebrating war? And it starts with this just dark motif that's supposed to actually sound kind of ugly and I hear so many performances of it, recordings of it, where people make a nice tone and it totally ruins the effect. Your tone is not supposed to sound nice. It's supposed to sound a little harsh. When you play a lot of metal, it just becomes so obvious how you had to bring ugliness into certain classical music. And I'll add about the darkness of it. I think the orchestration also has something to do with it. It's unusual in that it has horns, in fact, four of them, and tuba but no trombones. The tuba is essentially doing the work you would expect of the trombones, and I think that immediately gives it a darker color. And it, it attempts to rise and never quite makes it. Yeah. If you look at the, the melodic structure of it, but it's always going up and then falls down, up and then falls down and never quite makes it. Good point. Rachel, in your personal note, you give a kind of epigram to each movement, and in the first movement, you refer to the desperation of the first movement. In addition to the dynamic, how is this felt? 
Well, like Earl said, it's the composition, the pitches, the rhythms, the harmonies, the orchestration, just everything that he's creating with all the building blocks of music. I'm not a music theory professor. Somebody else could probably analyze it to death, but just what he does hits you on a visceral level and you just know that that's what's being expressed, that there's a struggle there and a struggle that is not successful. Let's hear some of that then. So this will be about the last third of the movement and the beginning of which is about as loud as the movement ever gets, the closest thing to an outcry, but still quite muted. And then it retreats back to the the prevailing pianissimo for the rest of the movement. So here is the end of the first moment of the Shostakovich First Violin Concerto, as performed by violinist Rachel Barden-Pine with the Royal Scottish National Orchestra, conducted by Tito Munoz.
You just heard a portion about the last third of the first movement of Dmitry Shostakovich's Violin Concerto No. 1 in A minor, Opus 77, on a new recording from Sadie Records as performed by violinist Rachel Barden-Pine with the Royal Scottish National Orchestra, conducted by Tito Munoz. My guests on this Classical Chicago podcast are the soloist Rachel Barden-Pine and also composer Earl Manian, whose concerto we'll be hearing from later. Right now we're going through the Shostakovich movements. Shostakovich labeled the second movement scherzo, Italian for joke, but this movement is definitely no joke. Rachel, you refer to the movement in your personal note as a protest and specifically a social justice protest. What makes you feel that? Shostakovich was not Jewish himself, but he definitely was very much an ally as far as the plight of Jewish people in Russia and the incredible injustices, you know, the genocide and the his Bobby Yar symphony is a great example of that, where literally the singer is discussing the killing fields. And there's a, a proud tradition of this. It's interesting, the piece written for me by Billy Childs, Incident on Larpentour Avenue about the killing of Philando Castile that appeared on my Sadie Records album, Blues Dialogues. When I perform this and explain the story of it, I often get audience members coming up to me afterwards saying, oh, I didn't know that classical music was ever doing the protest music thing. And I'm, uh, hello, Shostakovich. <laughs> so there's a long tradition of this. And of course, these days, there's a lot of Black Lives Matter pieces, like my personal favorite, shouldn't use the word favorite, maybe, because that's such a sad topic. But you know what I mean? Um, Joelle Thompson's Seven Last Words of the Unarmed. You, mm. If you haven't heard that one, you've got to check it out on YouTube. It's amazing powerful, but this is a longstanding tradition, and Shostakovich does it so well with various of his works, like that Eighth String Quartet. And in this case, he's using klezmer music, but using that to be like, hey, here are these Jewish people, and here, let's just remember them, let's think about them, let's shine a light on their mistreatment. And so the klezmer music isn't just there to be, oh, here's some folk music from where I live, or here's a cute theme or anything like that. It's what should be cheerful folk music in a very, very dark context. And that was obviously a very brave thing to do because everybody's going to know that that's Klezmer and know what his agenda was putting that in there. And Earl, you refer to these Klezmer elements in your note. Can you explain why it was so particularly dangerous for Shostakovich to reference Jewish dance music during the last Stalin years? In the second half of the 1940s, Stalin had conducted a purge of Jews using propaganda terms such as uh, rootless cosmopolitans. And there's something called the doctor's plot, where there were doctors that were killer doctors that were killing people in hospitals. And it was all just a farce. But it was basically used as a pretext, like a lot of things in the regime set up to go against Jews for any you know reason to start purging. It was the doctor's plot of, I believe, 1951. There were things stirring before that in the late 40s. So as we had said earlier, Shostakovich was denounced in 48 by Zhdanov. All of these things were swirling around at the time the doctor's plot was happening. At the same time, Shostakovich putting it in there was even that much more of a brave thing he did at that point but then also he couldn't actually put out the concerto. Yeah, he was literally criticizing Stalin right there in the music. Right there in the music, right. I wanted to mention that I didn't mention earlier why seven years until 1955. I think quite simply Stalin died. He had to wait. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Stalin yep. died. 
in uh, 53. And Khrushchev, who is not necessarily a nice guy, uh, he was very guilty of participating in the purges himself. But when Stalin died, he, he significantly rolled back a lot of the blanket purges that were happening during Stalin's lifetime. It was quote unquote safe, <laughs> or maybe safer for Shostakovich to release his concerto. And not only the concerto. uh, So Shostakovich during this period wrote a lot of public music for the regime, like film scores and stuff. But he also wrote a lot for the desk drawer, including the fourth and fifth string quartets. And the fourth quartet also has a Jewish uh, dance in it. So this was definitely a theme uh, for him at the time. And I wonder if this explains what you refer to as the gallows humor of what the winds are doing at the beginning of this movement, especially the bassoon. Yes. One thing that Shostakovich does so amazingly that I'm trying myself. (laughs) I I, I admire it very much. I have not been able to nail this particular emotional color that he gets. He's funny in the most awful way, Mm -hmm. in the most caustic, biting way. Obviously, the beginning of the second movement and also the fourth, which Mm -hmm. we can talk about later. This smiling through gritted teeth, like clowns stabbing each other. Maybe that's even not the right analogy exactly, but it's this caustic, bitter, bitter humor that it's laughing at death and with death at the same time. That's just, he, nobody does it better than him, I think. And I love how his not just feeling his own danger, but also really thinking about this other group to which he didn't personally belong and what was happening to them. It really shows his empathy. And I really appreciate that about him. In testimony, Shostakovich, I remember he's saying himself, he's like, I actually don't really want to talk about me. I'm just going to talk about all these other people that I admire. Very good points. So a little bit of an aside, Earl, but I do wonder if you have a special appreciation for this because Rachel pointed out to me, this is not part of your quote official bio, but you are one of the foremost and active performers of traditional Jewish music in New York, performing at things like Orthodox celebrations. Have to put in the old punchline here, funny, you don't look Jewish. It might be a good time for you to mention what your heritage actually is. So I am Thai and Chinese. Yes, so I do a lot of what they call from which is religious, like Orthodox, the whole umbrella, Judaism being a giant, giant, giant umbrella. Basically, I play a lot of celebration, a lot of simchas, ranging from Satmar, very religious, up to modern Orthodox celebrations. So I got into this from a mutual friend of ours, of mine and Rachel's, uh, named Joe Denenzon, who needed me to sub he does it also or did it and well joe is jewish yes joe is jewish he needed a sub one day and got me in and i apparently did a good enough first job to be asked back and i love the music and i did my homework i went and i audio recorded all of the music that was being played and i went and studied it and showed up at the next job and i knew most of the songs what the offices appreciate, and the offices meaning the booking agents, the, the businesses that book the weddings, is that I bring a lot of positive energy. It, the whole idea is that you're helping people celebrate. Well, I love hearing your descriptions of those dances where all the Orthodox men are just like letting loose and trolling around and how that was some kind of crazy cousin of a metal audience in it's a way. so close. <laughs> Actually, it's not even a cousin. I would say it's a sibling. It's so close. It's like a punk show. They're running around in a circle, like super amped. And like part of it is I think that they're young and it's this wild energy. This certainly doesn't happen at WASP 
celebrations. It's this raw energy where you can literally jump from the stage into people like a hardcore show. And that's great. That's fine. So you're crowd surfing with the Orthodox? <laughs> Not every job, but it happened. It definitely happened. To get back to this Shostakovich, in addition to the Jewish dance that pervades much of this movement, this movement is, I believe, the first time that he asserts himself personally in a piece by quoting his own musical motto, which comes from the German transliteration of his name, Dmitry Shostakovich, where instead of S-H, it's actually S-C-H. And so he takes the first letter of his first name, the D, and in German, S is E-flat and H is B-natural, and you get D-S-C-H, which sounds like this. Which sounds and, so super spooky. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it, it fits him quite well, doesn't it? He actually quotes this for the first time in this second movement of this concerto, and later on it comes back a ton in the 10th symphony. The entire 8th quartet is based on this motto. How significant is it, though, that this is where he chose to unveil his personal signature? I don't know. I've been divided about that. Like, does that mean that this concerto is more meaningful in some kind of a way? Or is it just that maybe making his name into notes only just then occurred to him? I guess people can decide for themselves. Let's hear a portion of the movement now. And in fact, we're going to hear from where he first introduces this musical monogram and through some of the Jewish dance that we heard before in the intro to this podcast and going up to where the movement's opening theme returns. So here's, again, about a third of the movement, this time right from the middle of the scherzo of the violin concerto number one of Dmitry Shostakovich. Once again, we hear violinist Rachel Barden-Pine with the Royal Scottish National Orchestra conducted by Tito Munoz. Thank you. 
You just heard a portion of the scherzo, the second movement of Dmitry Shostakovich's first violin concerto in a new recording by violinist Rachel Barden-Pine with the Royal Scottish National Orchestra, conducted by Tito Munoz on this Classical Chicago podcast from CD Records. And if you like what you're hearing, and I sure hope you do, you can get this album numerous ways. Its official release date will be August 11th of this year, 2023, and that's when it will appear on streaming sites like Spotify, Apple Music, and the higher-end ones as well, like iDagio. You can also purchase the album. You can pre-order it whenever you're hearing this, if it's before August 11th, and then it will ship, whether it's from the Sadie Records website, C-E-D-I-L-L-E records.org, or Amazon, or Archive Music. Basically, wherever you listen to or get your music, uh, this album will be there. And I just want to quickly add in that if you do choose to stream rather than purchase the physical CD, please be sure to read all of the cool stuff that we've got in the album booklet. And you can do that for free on Sadie Records' website, as you can for all of their releases. Thank you for mentioning that. In fact, when you go to the album page, there are two ways you can do that. You can click on the page itself to read the program notes, or you can download uh, the booklet for free. So either way. Rachel's personal note and Earl's program note are both really interesting reads, uh, and I think you'll learn a lot from them. So to move on to the third movement, it's a Pasakalia, and it's really two movements in one. We have the lyrical Pasakalia, which is a Baroque form that I think it's fair to say is the emotional heart of the piece. And then that flows directly into a violin condensa that Earl describes in his note as having a ferocity unparalleled in the violin literature. I think he means until the Manian violin concerto was written. Was written. Oh well, we can discuss that when we get there. And I should note that this cadenza is actually written as part and tracked on this recording as part of the third moment, which is different from the case of the Shostakovich first cello concerto written 10 years later, where the cadenza is actually scored as a completely separate movement. But let's start by discussing the first part of this movement. Earl, You've noted that what makes this Pasacalia unique is it's, as you call it, super unusual, 17-measure-long ground bass. Can you explain what's so unusual about that and the feelings this conveys as it opens and then undergirds the whole movement? Sure. In Baroque dances, like the Pasacalia is an even number. I know that there's odd-timed dance traditions in Eastern European musics, but as far as if we're thinking of a standard Western European Pasigalia as like what Bach wrote or these Baroque composers, it's a ground bass that is quite simple to accentuate the dance. So the 17 measures gives already this unstable, the whole thing is underpinned by a not symmetrical feeling. So I feel the listener is already feeling uneasy from the very ground. It's not something that is a stable ground. And when you look at the notes of the ground bass in the Pasacalia, I feel he's also echoing something that I talked about earlier in the first movement where he's trying to reach up and then failing and then reaching up and then failing in line with my earlier assertion of the protagonist struggling. And so he's struggling and it's an asymmetrical line. That is already, I feel, super unusual, and Shostakovich is absolutely using this to convey that type of feeling. That's my assertion. 
So Rachel, what's it like spinning your poignant lyrical line over this uh, perhaps unstable repeated bass? Yeah, it's unstable, but it's also relentless. It happens again and again, and it's just the dun, dun, dun. It's coming for you. And what's interesting from a compositional point of view, what he does in this movement is it's also a canon in a way. Whatever the orchestra played for one variation, I play for the next variation and they play something else. And then I play that something else for the next variation and so on. So I'm always following them, which I don't know if the listener picks up on that so much, if that's discernible to the average person just listening to the music, but what it creates emotionally, it's not just like a lot of Baroque Pasacalias where it's, okay, here's a variation and now here's a variation and now here's a variation. I'm actually practicing the Bieber Pasacalia, which I recorded on CD solo Baroque album way back, practicing that one right now. And it's, okay, here's this, and now here's this. And it, it has a coherency and an overall flow. But with the Shostakovich, this layering and canon effect really means that the whole entire movement feels like one single journey that just is going in one direction the whole time. It's not ebb and flow. It's just keeping going and keeping going and keeping going because of the way that each part turns into the next part, turns into the next part, turns into the next part. And that's for such a, a long and slow movement for it to feel like one continual thought is really incredible. When you think you can't take anymore, it just is still going and going and going. Just amazing. Your epithet for this movement in your personal note is relentless. That certainly applies to the cadenza portion of the movement as well. What's it like to play this cadenza and how different is it from other concerto cadenzas that you've played and including the ones you've written yourself? Yeah, well, I only write cadenzas for concertos where composers didn't write their own cadenzas, which means mostly classical period, with the exception of the Brahms concerto, of course. Nothing in that is supposed to be it quite as aggressive. <laughs> I think if I did something Shostakovich-ish, either in the harmonic language or in the emotional journey, and put that into a Mozart concerto, that would be a little disturbing and inappropriate. The cadenza, of course, does pull back and it starts very calmly and very softly. And the effectiveness of a great climax is the buildup. Everything I'm doing before it goes crazy is ultimately setting that up where it's just starting to play with the idea of gaining momentum. And then when it finally does start to get rolling with it. It's just this inertia, which is unstoppable. The momentum has to keep building and building and building until it just explodes so that the calm parts and the slower parts are just as important because you have to really make those effective in order for the crazy part to hit you with the maximum impact. You bring even extra ferocity to the white-hot ending of this really amazing cadenza. How do you find the energy to do that, both uh, in live performance and in the repeated <laughs> playings of a recording session? Well, it's funny because my professor in Germany, with whom I studied in my late teens, whenever I'd be playing Brahms or whatever, he would always say, you have the temperament of two. <laughs> so I guess that's just part of my musical or human personality. I'm a pretty calm person in my normal daily life, but I've also got like a an extreme stamina that people will sometimes laugh at me about. So 
yeah, put that to good use when it could be helpful in music, I guess. I've definitely right. laughed at your impressive stamina seeing you play, Rachel. I will count myself as one of those who is just amazed. All right, well, great. Let's hear some of that then. So what we're going to hear for this moment is a two-minute section of the Pasacalia where from the solo violin entrance, basically we'll hear the first two variations that are with violin. The movement starts with an orchestral passage first, and then we'll jump to the last minute of that cadenza and fade it out, go straight into the fourth moment, and we'll talk about that in a moment. But we'll hear it just as it goes into the fourth moment. So here is a double excerpt, as it were, of the Pasacalia third movement of the Violin Concerto Number no. 1 of Dmitry Shostakovich. Once again, we hear violinist Rachel Barden-Pine with the Royal Scottish National Orchestra conducted by Tito Munoz.
You just heard two different portions of the Pasakalya movement that ends with a cadenza of the Shostakovich First Violin Concerto from a new recording on CD Records by violinist Rachel Barden-Pine with the Royal Scottish National Orchestra conducted by Tito Munoz. And as you heard in that excerpt, the cadenza does flow directly into the finale, which opens with an arresting orchestral tootie before the soloist returns. Rachel, I believe you like to tell the story of why the finale begins this way. Can you elucidate? Yeah, well, basically, <laughs> the tale is that Oistrakh requested that an orchestra-only moment be inserted so that he would have a chance to, quote-unquote, wipe his brow, basically catch his breath after all of that cadenza stuff before launching into the also intense last movement. It's funny because the Minian Concerto, as we'll discuss later, also has a crazy cadenza that leads right into the last movement. But in the, the case of Earl's Concerto, I keep on playing. I I guess I could have requested that Earl let me wipe my brow. But <laughs> um, in a way, once I got into that totally shredding zone, I didn't even want to stop, even though it is kind of killer to not be able to. It's like once you're there, you, know, you just keep going for it. But in the case of the Shostakovich concerto, of course, Shostakovich made it work, and now you can't imagine it any other way. But it reminds me of another musical phenomenon that was done for totally practical purposes. There's a Handel oratorio where every few movements, he doesn't write anything for the viola section. And it was because that particular viola section was entrepreneurial and sold concessions to the crowd. And so every few movements, they would set down their instruments and go and sell snacks and then come back and play the other movements. And yeah, so sometimes there are very less than artistic reasons for things. And in this case, it was Oistrakh sopping up his sweat. Well, and we should mention, uh, if we haven't before, that Oistrakh is David Oistrakh, the great, great Russian violinist for whom Shostakovich wrote and to whom Shostakovich dedicated this concerto. Earl, you refer to the, I'm going to quote here from your notes, grim, relentless sarcasm of this moment. Can you expound on that and say why you love it so much? Sure. For me, it's Shostakovich's rhythmic choices that give that feeling of grim, relentless sarcasm. It's Again, forgive my voice. It's It's the poking. Everything is a poke. And it just doesn't stop. Even if exact rhythm isn't there, it's the accents on the end of the second beat just go and go and go and go. And it just doesn't stop. The rational answer to what Rachel was talking about before, like when you just think you can't take anymore, not only will you get more pain, but you're also going to get laughed at. That emotional color is just brilliant. And it hits me on this deep level where it's, oh, you're suffering? That's funny. That's great. That's funny. That That's how you feel. Great. Laugh some more. Have some more. Yeah, to me, it feels like the soloist is being made to dance for the amusement of the orchestra. It might be a little out there, but it reminds me of an original Star Trek series episode where there are these beings that have tremendous telekinetic abilities and they basically make the Enterprise crew dance and contort themselves and do other things and laugh at them. And I feel like some of that is happening in this concerto. I don't know if either of you want to comment on that. 
Well, of course, with the Jewish people, there was a documented phenomenon of whether it was the Nazis in Germany or evil people in Russia, like literally making them dance and laughing at them. I mean, this literally happened. Um, so I don't think that's very far-fetched, whether it's a sci-fi context or something from our real past. I know we're going to get to a fuller discussion of heavy metal in a, just a little bit, but both of you refer to the presto at the end of this movement as an example of moshing. So I'd like you to explain this concept and how does that apply here to this concerto? Moshing is a mutually agreed upon, admittedly violent sort of dancing. There's a video that I would like to refer to greater audience to look at if you chose to do your research called Step Down by the New York hardcore band Sick of It All, where they give a tongue-in-cheek description of all the different types of moshings dance moves that exist and some that haven't been developed at the time because it's a little bit of an old song but it's the mutually agreed upon where your arms are flailing and if you are in what's colloquially known as the pit which is where the space in which moshing happens you're basically agreeing to get a little hurt but there are also rules you're not gunning for somebody what they call crowd killing crowd killing is not usually condoned if somebody is crowd killing, which means like going after somebody to actually physically attack them, they'll generally get removed uh, harshly from the crowd. They'll get ejected real quick because there are actually, even though it's mutually agreed upon uh, yeah, violence, there are definitely rules. If somebody falls down, you pick them right up because everybody understands that this is a potentially dangerous situation and that we're all here to get our feelings out you're not really trying to hurt somebody. So those are the basic rules of moshing. It's somebody falls down, pick them right up. Uh, also, obviously, which unfortunately gets violent, no sexual, anybody seen trying to like put their hands on somebody, they're also forcibly removed. So that's what moshing is. because it's Yeah, you think we're, we're there to, to slam into each other, but we're also there to protect each other, which is an amazing community, actually. How does that apply here? Because I'm not sure the orchestra exactly wants to protect the soloist in this movement. In that sense, I would say it's one of these situations where, at least my take on it, and Rachel, you may have a different one, but I feel that the soloist and the orchestra are actually unified here in this final approach to the end because everybody's playing the same tempo. So what happens in, in metal music, and I would say it's just music because it's the human responses. You're at a certain tempo and then a sudden acceleration amps up your emotional response. So in a metal show, when if you're playing a certain riff at a certain tempo and all of a sudden the band stops and then you have a guitar going at a third faster the speed, it's basically the human reaction is to start moshing because that's the release. Your band is giving you the release. So I would say at the end of the movement, this uh, rehearsal, uh, like rehearsal 110, I don't know if anybody's looking at the score. I don't know how nerdy everybody is, but if you're looking at rehearsal 110 at near the end, or the, the, the piece suddenly shifts into a suddenly fast tempo, and that's the signal for catharsis. At least that's my yeah. You can You can hear a great example of this in non-classical music, um, the Chicago industrial band, uh, Ministry, <laughs> they have a song called Thieves. And it's like so obvious. It's like for a while. Then all of a sudden, like it just changes to this like fast, like explosion of aggression. And 
that's the moment when everybody just suddenly like erupts and goes back and forth and you hear that and then you'll hear exactly like where Shostakovich is doing this too. You know, I spent a lot of my teenage years in mosh pits. And then obviously when I was injured, I could no longer safely get into a mosh pit, which was a great sadness. But then when I joined my metal band for the first time ever in my life, I was on stage playing music and a mosh pit formed in front of me. And that was a feeling that I'd never felt as a performer before. The power of causing this explosion of violence and the way that it happens so organically. And you know, now, of course, I have to watch metal shows from a VIP box up somewhere, just watching the people on the floor. It's almost like watching weather patterns or something, the way it all swirls around and the way that the music inspires it. It really shows you the power of music. So what makes this ending of the concerto so satisfying for each of you? I think it's that catharsis. It's also ambiguous. He doesn't go suddenly major like, oh, hey, you were struggling about all this, but hey, it's, it's okay. There's a nice A major chord for you. He <laughs> doesn't do that, which would be such a cop-out. But you do feel that unbelievable catharsis, like we mentioned earlier, because of that sudden tempo shift at the end, and you, you're you getting something out. And the rhythm of the solo part, like I literally am headbanging as I play this <sighs> on my acoustic violin, and it just feels so good. Well, let's hear that then. Okay, so here's the last about two minutes of the concerto, which begins with a climbing theme in the solo violin that, to me at least, immediately imparts a sense of struggle that then leads to the catharsis that you talked about. Once again, it's played by violinist Rachel Barden-Pine with the Royal Scottish National Orchestra, conducted by Tito Munoz. Thank you. 
That was the end of the Shostakovich First Violin Concerto, fourth movement, of course, titled Burlesque, by the way, performed by violinist Rachel Barden-Pine with the Royal Scottish National Orchestra, conducted by Tito Munoz on their new recording for Sadie Records. And now that we've heard one of the two concertos on this album, Rachel, let's talk about the recording sessions and your collaborators on this album who had to keep up with your lyricism and intensity every step of the way, and I think they did a marvelous job. The conductor is Tito Munoz, who is celebrating his 10th season as the music director of the Phoenix Symphony in this upcoming 2023-2024 season. He previously served as music director of the Opéra Nationale de Lorraine and the Orchestre Symphonique et Lyrique de Nancy in France. Other prior appointments include assistant conductor positions with the Cleveland Orchestra, Cincinnati Symphony, Cincinnati Chamber Orchestra, and the Aspen Music Festival. Really, the list of orchestras with which Tito has collaborated over the years since his professional conducting debut in 2006 with the National Symphony Orchestra in Washington is really remarkable. Tito is a product of the LaGuardia High School of the Performing Arts in New York, the Juilliard School's Music Advancement Program, and Manhattan School of Music's Pre-College Division. He furthered his training at Queens College uh, in the CUNY and received his conducting training at the American Academy of Conducting at Aspen. Uh, You can check out his website at titomunoz.com. In the orchestra he's conducting on this album, is the Venerable Royal Scottish National Orchestra, which was formed back in 1891 as just the Scottish Orchestra, became the Scottish National Orchestra in 1950, and then got royal patronage in 1977. The conductors it's worked with in a significant capacity include Sir John Barbaroli, Sir Alexander Gibson, Nema Yervi, Walter Weller, Stefan Deneuve, currently led by Danish conductor Thomas Sondergaard, who was appointed music director in 2018. The orchestra has a worldwide reputation thanks to its more than 200 recordings, and I will note that their recordings of almost all of the Shostakovich symphonies under name Meyervi are some of the really best out there. You might want to check out their recordings of the 4th, 5th, and especially 10th symphonies, and of course they've recorded all the concertos as well, so they were well-versed in Shostakovich coming into this project. Rachel, what was it like collaborating with both uh, Tito and this orchestra? And I should note, it's not your first time with either. Yeah, well, of course, I have a very strong collection to Scotland itself, because in my other life, I am, in fact, a Scottish fiddler. Being part of that community is a big part of what I do. The question, am I Scottish? I haven't actually done my genealogical research, but I do have red hair and ancestors' last names that make that a strong possibility. But it's one of my favorite musical styles, which is more important than anything. So going to Scotland and just being there is always really special. RSNO are old friends at this point, and it's always great to reunite with them. In fact, I'm going back this fall to perform with them the Florence Price Second Concerto. 